Welcome to New Narrative Southeast Asia Dispatches. I'm your host, Bonnie Bell Rambatan, Editorial Manager for New Narrative. New Narrative is a movement to democratize democracy in Southeast Asia, and this podcast is one of the ways we attempt to do just that. In Southeast Asia, undisguised repression of media workers remains prevalent. Despite the fact that murders and arrests get a lot of attention, this focus is still cramped because it ignores the day-to-day challenges media workers face by highlighting only the most obvious cases of harm. So, media freedom undoubtedly needs a holistic approach. This means immersing oneself in workers' experiences. From the daily dynamics of their workplace to the precarious work, it all takes place in an environment of frequent repression and economic hardship. With an increasingly hostile atmosphere towards media workers in Southeast Asia, New Narrative's Media Freedom Insights publications try to better understand their life experiences. Media Freedom Insights is New Narrative's collection of reports dedicated to the fight for media freedom in Southeast Asia. The series takes an approach that centers media workers at the heart of the region's media landscape. The reports housed by the series cover a range of topics, from the challenges faced by media workers in Southeast Asia to their aspirations for a freer media space to potential pathways for collective action. New Narrative's current Media Freedom Insight series, titled Engendering Media Freedom, aims to showcase the gendered experiences of journalists in the region to understand the media ecosystem. Hello everyone, so I'm the freedom of expression researcher uh, with New Narrative's uh, research department our first research output as part of Media Freedom Insights uh, Series 4 has just dropped. Uh, One thing that we are going to try and aim for is to use research as a form of activism and this is something that we can speak a little bit more about uh, in this dispatch. That is Wai Liang Tham, New Narrative's researcher, an editor and currently a literary scholar in training with a particular interest in memory studies. He has been published in the Southeast Asian Review of English and co-curated the Trans-Pacific and Asian-Canadian Literary Journey exhibition. Wai Liang is the primary author of Series 4 of Media Freedom Insights that I briefly spoke about earlier. The research is still ongoing, and since it tries to cover multiple countries, involve different genders, and generally be as representative as possible, we aren't likely to get any conclusive results for maybe a year from now. In this episode, however, we'll be talking about research as activism. I mentioned this before, but essentially, rather than simply applying a theoretical framework, this approach platforms marginalized voices, researching with people instead of researching people. We'll talk about the wider scope of this research as part of New Narrative's Media Freedom in Southeast Asia project, as well as this methodology and approach with Wai Liang. This is all very um, exciting, but let's give uh, give the listeners a bit of introduction. What is actually Media Freedom Insights? You know, because New Narrative has this whole. There's a Media Freedom Network. There's a Media Freedom in Southeast Asia project. There's there's all of these things that New Narrative is doing. Could you give a bit of insight about the Media Freedom Insights itself and how it plays with the rest of the other Media Freedom initiatives that New Narrative is doing? So I think what we can, how we can think about it is to consider the Media Freedom Project as more of a broad, um, overarching, well, project that we're all engaged in. And essentially, it can be divided into two uh, complementary um, aspects. There's the Media Freedom uh, Network, as Bonnie mentioned. Uh, that is 
that is that is very much concerned with uh, connecting media workers from across the region. Uh, but what our Media Freedom Insights uh, means to do is essentially to um, uh, provide the raw insights from media workers across the region, uh, some of which may uh, hopefully be able to interplay with um, the uh, the work that's being done by our Media Freedom Network. So I think rather than think about these as uh, two separate initiatives working in silos, uh, rather they interact very much with each other. So our findings would uh, can in, work in a virtual cycle, so they can uh, inform directions in which uh, the Media Freedom Network can go into. Uh, and also the uh, insights that come in from the Media Freedom Network's own advocacy uh, can circle back and suggest ways in which um, uh, uh, the Media Freedom Insights reports can be written. They might inform the way uh, that we ask certain questions because we'll be like, hey, so something new has turned up and it's something that's worth uh, exploring further. Uh, so that's very much in a nutshell how um, the Media Freedom Project, the insights and the network are uh, related to each other. It, sounds a, it might sound a bit complicated at first, but, um, and there's really quite a lot of moving parts in practice, but I think we've been making it work so far. But as all things go, it's always uh, uh, things are always a process. Um, I'm going to come back to that later, but um, you did mention that it's Series 4, Publication 1. Because, um, you know, we have published a few others before, which is like Envisioning Media Freedom and Independence. That's the first series, I believe. And then Beyond the Absence of Killings and Arrests, we also did that. And also a manifesto, uh, Making the World We Want, which is Series 3, I believe. Um, can you talk a bit more about these previous research and how your own research build, uh, uh, builds on top of, uh, on top of these? Um, in many ways, uh, when, we, uh, when this Media Freedom Insights uh, series first started, it went under, under a different name at the time, but we're uh, focusing more on streamlining uh, the naming conventions, uh, the branding, uh, also the speak. Um, so how this started out was as, so series one and series two were a qualitative and quantitative approach, um, respectively. And what emerged during this time were a few key uh, thematic areas that suggested uh, uh, ways for future, in which future research could develop. So as it turns out, uh, in the, uh, the manifesto that we've published, uh, that's uh, series three, um, so we so three key areas were identified, and of course it would be quite a lot of work if we were to explore uh, all of them uh, all at once. So what we've done for series four, and series four is meant to take place over uh, the course of a year, um, meant to take place over the course of a year, and uh, we're just using it as a chance to look into. Uh, how um, the gendered experience of media. So for let's say if um, uh, you were a media worker um, uh, of a marginalized gender or sexuality, we would be very interested in understanding uh, how this uh, interplays with uh, your work uh, in the media. Um, but of course, then we need to consider what exactly the media is because, um, uh, I mean, if we take the very broad approach to it, I think let's say Marshall McLuhan's uh, approach, then you could consider the media as anything from, you know, like uh, the radio, television, newspaper, roads, money, um, and that sort of thing. 
Um, but we kind of have to narrow it down a little bit. So at least for series four, we're looking at how um, and basically how gender plays out in uh, news making. But news making itself is a very broad, it's a very broad term. And we usually consider, let's say, like uh, what we can think of as traditional print media. Uh, and of course, there's also, you know, like TV, radio, but, but then we're not forgetting news portals and perhaps other forms of uh, making the news as well, uh, such as, uh, well, such as, let's say, uh, documentary journalism. So these would be areas in which we can, in which we can consider further. Um, does that answer the question? I realize that I've been giving a lot of very broad, big picture uh, insights. So I think we can slowly unpack that uh, bit by bit. Yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of threads to pursue over there. Uh, I'd, I'd like to just follow up on the on the last thread that you explored on on media itself. It's like it's a very broad definition, right? So of course, there's like social media in general, and you know, independent media, um, quote unquote, like homeless media, and all of these things. And then when we talk about like media freedom, obviously, there's like um, a lot of spectrums in in the media itself. There's like yeah. Uh, not even talking about pro-government or like anti-government um, media or like critical media and stuff like that, but also um, again, social media, propaganda media, and all of these things. It, it just becomes, it just gets really uh, very muddy. And also, when you when you talk about media freedom itself, there's the whole. Um, again, we've we've discussed this uh, in in the previous in the previous research, but maybe we could just uh, go over this a, a little bit more, uh, which is you know. Um, we 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 talked about direct threats from from the governments from authorities, but then also uh, we we can talk about representation. We can talk about algorithms. We can talk about all of these things. Um, how would you personally uh, and in your research like narrow down all of these? Um, so what we did during the literature review uh, was that we went through. We basically went through a lot of. Re- we basically went through uh, various the usual things when people think of media freedom. So you know, uh, working within how, how people work uh, when there's uh, state repression. But of course, uh, state repression is by no means the only uh, constraint facing media workers uh, because it could even be something as everyday and mundane as, right, can I afford to keep working in this job? Do I get paid enough? Will my job survive until the end of the month? Um, so those are the more um, quotidian, everyday concerns that, um, the media workers do need to um, they do they do need to face. Um, so, what we tried to do is we outlined a few key thematic areas that uh, we thought might uh, provide room for further analysis. Um, oh, if you don't mind, then I could I could go over those uh, uh, those five areas that we've outlined. Would that be all right? Yeah, please do. Okay, great. So. Um, we've sort of divided the uh, those. We've sort of divided our lit- literature review uh, into five key areas, and of those key areas, then what we are planning, what we plan to do is to ask questions. Um, we are basically taking a qualitative approach, so we'll just be speaking to our research participants about um, uh, what we can consider these uh, some key sub themes and how these are all. Uh, or, and how basically uh, taking a look through a gendered lens is essentially the framework, uh, the main framework. Uh, but we can explore this uh, further uh, through these areas. So these they are very broad, and at 
And I think maybe a word of warning from ourselves is we have, because we are, it's still an ongoing process, so we don't actually have any idea about what kind of insights uh, will emerge just yet. But um, the first area we're looking into is systemic and structural factors. Uh, and the second one uh, would be working lives, namely the, the working experiences of, uh, of those media workers in general. Uh, and of course, we're very much interested in representations uh, representation uh, can be seen in, again, different senses. Like, are there enough, uh, is there enough diversity in terms of the workforce? But also, what kind of media representations emerge through these various, uh, the various media texts? Uh, what are they constructing? Uh, who are they constructing it for? And, of course, um, and of course, whether this may lead to any salient effects uh, in the, uh, let's say, like in public opinion itself. Um, another area is education and journalism training, because of course you don't, you don't, you really just don't come into, uh, in many ways, in many ways, the many routes into uh, media work. But uh, how are you trained in it? Uh, are you provided with enough? Uh, su- are you provided with enough support? The the right skill set, and also very importantly, how are you being taught to uh, tell stories and that sort of thing. And I think uh, as, and I think Bonnie, and also this one will tie back to your interest into algorithms because we are very interested in uh, digital transformations. Again, because the media landscape evolves very quickly. Um, it evolves very quickly. And of course, digitization, digitalization, uh, these are areas where we, we, we would really need to consider in further detail. So yeah, those are the five uh, the five key sub teams that we have right now, uh, and what we're going and again as I mentioned, what we're going to do is we're going to um, while we keep our uh, our interviews uh, semi structured, uh, what we want to do is use these interviews to eventually circle back uh, to these key sub teams to see what kind of uh, insights may emerge. Again, some of them may they may yield uh, more. Uh, insightful um, responses, and others may turn out to be dead ends. But I think that's the—I um, don't want to say the beauty of research, um, <laughs> but I know the part of it is that's really how research works. Because uh, on the surface, when if you look at a research paper, it seems it all seems very tidy. Again, it proceeds in very tidy steps, and uh, the and the assumption that you get from the outside is like, hey. They had a good idea going in, and they and it all played out very perfectly. But I think in the messy reality of it is that you kind of go back and forth. There are some areas that work out, some other areas don't work out, and it's a matter of representing it, of uh, narrating how you came to these findings um, in a more in a more or less coherent fashion. Although I think the one thing that we're also very much um, uh, cognizant of is that we are because we can't mimetically represent reality because it's always very much filtered through uh, our own subjective opinions and subjective approaches. So that's why we talk very much about, we problematize objectivity very much uh, in this sense. And it may be more honest for us to be very openly subjective about uh, our work because at least once we've staked out the position, then because we're not merely making a pretense to be uh, quote-unquote traditionally objective in this sense. So yeah, those yeah. are. Yeah, I think that's where I think I probably should stop here for now, because I think we might need to unpack a few of these discussions a bit further. 
we will definitely unpack a lot of those uh, further down down the line. Not not down the line. Very soon. But before that, I just want I just wanted to ask, um, why gender? What is your interest and in? like why 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 the focus on gender? Because you know, obviously, there's uh, there's a lot more to go to go about it. If you want to talk about like personal experiences, there's lo- lots of factors like socioeconomic uh, class and. Race and other things, but you chose specifically uh, gender. Can you talk a bit more about that? That's definitely something that something that we can do. So when it comes to talking about gendered and marginalized experiences, um, this was one of those key areas that uh, emerged. Um, one of those key areas again that emerged uh, during the uh, from a ma- and you can see that in the manifesto. Uh, basically, there were three key, there were three areas altogether, uh, but. Um, Uh, it's, but it seemed like gender would have been a fairly a fairly good place to start with. Uh, I think partly for the reason is that, um, so if it's okay for me to go back a bit to our literature review and to look very much into the uh, into the kind of uh, discussions that are happening in academic circles, there's very much the concern with what the People have uh, some theorists have described as the feminiz- feminization of uh, feminization of uh, uh, media or journalism more broadly. So the sense where, as it turns out, um, so I'll just use it. To, uh, so in this case, uh, I just have to clarify that uh, a lot of research is concerned with the male and female binaries. So I'll just have to stick with a convention. At least temporarily for the time being, but the general idea um, when it comes to this, when people talk about uh, the uh, feminization of media, is that um, it's not necessarily just that a higher proportion of uh, female workers are entering a particular uh, a particular workforce in a particular area, but also that uh, this goes hand in hand with how that area is being. Devalued. So I think taking a broader view of, uh, let's say specifically journalism for now, uh, again, it's a sense that right. So there are, as it turns out, in some areas, uh, significant numbers of female employees, for example. Uh, but not. But also, when you consider how the field itself is changing, it's becoming a lot more precarious. Uh, you can your work can be outsourced. You can be retrenched, uh, taken back on as a freelancer, and that sort of thing. So that, that so the whole idea of uh, what people might say, quote unquote, feminization of a particular workforce, it also ties very much back to how that workforce is being devalued. It is being uh, made more precarious. Um, So, for, and also for this reason, that's it becomes a very rich area of analysis and a very urgent one, as well. Um, and also, and also, it provides a good form of a, a good front for us to perhaps uh, engage in more activism along these lines. And of course, because if we take a gendered approach more broadly, uh, we do need to platform more diverse uh, areas because when it comes to the media, it's. Traditionally, been structured along a lot of uh, values that have been, you know, seen as being more traditionally masculine. So, you know, you just it, because I mean, this I think we're all quite familiar with the uh, image of that, uh, you know, like the kind of a Gonzo reporter image or kind of reporter who goes up fiercely into uh, conflict zones and that sort of thing. And these are very much uh, and also the kind of values that I espoused in the newsroom itself. Just and these are all very masculine traits that. Uh, that are very much entrenched 
um, within uh, the media ecosystem. That's sort of, uh, does that answer the question? I know that's a very long answer to to your question just now. Uh, no, no, it's, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's uh, it gives a nice background and I think uh, it's, it's a... It's a great segue into, you know, researchers, activists himself. I'm going to quote uh, something that, that you wrote about research, uh, about your method, which is like, we engage in research activism. Uh, we engage in research as activism. Instead of simply applying a theoretical framework, we are more interested in making this process emancipatory in the sense of getting marginalized voices heard. And if there's a political outcome, so much the better. So um, there's a lot of um, elements here. The first is, of course, research, research as activism. And then, you know, um, on top of applying theoretical framework, you have emancipatory processes. And then that leads into making marginalized voices heard. Can you, I mean, obviously all of these things are tied together in your approach, but can you elaborate more on this on this statement? I mean, the first, the easiest thing for us to do, of course, would be to platform uh, those voices. So that's why like all our research participants, um, uh, that they definitely would be, they would, they would be someone of a marginalized gender or sexuality. Uh, so that's the most, the key important step that we're doing. We are hearing from them first and we are, uh, right. And we are, and we are explaining their context, their situation. And of course, with the proper degree of uh, confidentiality. Uh, but what happens after this? So I think maybe we broaden out to, um, maybe what I can think about is the emancipatory potential of it. Uh, I think we are aware that when it comes to producing research reports, it's very easy to write to write the report and, uh, you know, just put out there and like, hey, we have done something, but we would like to do something more with it. So that's why we work very closely together with our civic participation department uh, in the Media Freedom Network uh, to, uh, to work out uh, peer review sessions. We get people to come in and be like, hey, so this is what we found. Can you confirm that uh, this is, did your experience feels like this? Or if you have something completely different that you'd like to share, and also now that we've established all this, so what can we what can we do next? Actually, is there any what can we do next? Uh, we we know that these problems exist, but how do we go about resolving those problems? Um, so that's what we hope to do within our peer review sessions. We hope to outline areas in which uh, which can actually help uh, media workers who are working on the ground, uh, whether or not suggesting ways in which you know like. Um, uh, in which, uh, you know, you can sort of lobby for change at a policy level or ways in which you can network at an inf- informal level. Uh, and these would, of course, be very different depending on your uh, the country context and the legislative uh, frameworks and structures in which uh, you are working under. So, of course, what applies in Malaysia, Malaysia is my home region, by the way, uh, may not necessarily apply in uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand. So it's going to be a very long process. Uh, so it's not just speaking to our uh, research participants uh, and writing the initial report, but after that, it's also speaking to more people about the research and getting that research to go, you know, to bring it out of uh, what we consider the, I mean, as the academic ivory tower, but also for any research that's produced by a think tank, an NGO, uh, for example, uh, the, you can produce things, but the question is, what do you do with those things uh, once they are out there? Um, so that can have, uh, I mean, that can, that can this, this also very much has a political, 
a political dimension to it, uh, of course. Um, and I think that's something that we would hope to achieve in some shape or form. Uh, of course, so there's no guarantee that any of this can work out just yet. So that's where we're going to have to put in a lot of hard work from this point onwards. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about of an elaboration on that on that front. Okay, um, just to make things a little bit clearer here, um, that's research as activism, right? Um, you did mention a little bit because you know when we talk about like political dimensions, all research has its political dimension, whether overtly or like more in a more covert manner. Um, what would you say research as not activism look like? Like, how would you contrast this method with other methods? Uh, <laughs> oh gosh, okay, this one is... Okay, I, I suppose in this case, I mean, the obvious one is, uh, you know, the kind of research that's directed by companies towards profit-making. Uh, that's definitely not research or activism. But I think in other way, in many ways, I feel like... Uh, I mean, there's also the kind. I mean, there's also that argument that uh, academic research uh, is it very much goes towards perpetuating uh, broader systems that we live under. Uh, I know that one argument that's been made before is that the university functions as, uh, you know, going back to Adam Smith's concept of uh, the invisible hand. The university functions as the invisible hand of uh, uh, the economy in many ways because that's. I mean, it's a site where. Ideas are generated, they're tossed about, uh, and they kind of go on to inform um, other ways of uh, kind of going go on to sort of like buttress the existing structures uh, out there uh, in a particular country in the world more broadly. Uh, but also, if we talk about, um, I guess, the passivity of um, uh, research in many ways, uh, and also we tie this back to conditions within academia, where you're sort of, if you're an academic, you're expected to to write, to produce, and you have to feed the machine because that's the only way, that's the only, in some cases, that's the only way uh, you can keep your job. You keep getting published, you hope to get cited, but there's just so much material out there and much of it doesn't, it doesn't get cited, it doesn't get read. Uh, some of it is not very well produced because it's being, it's been cranked out in uh, as, base, as a bit of a mill, I suppose. And of course, then it goes back to the, uh, the entire ecosystem of publishing, uh, whereby things are locked up behind paywalls. Uh, the interest of academic publishers is very much in, you know, financing themselves. Uh, and let's not get started on such things such as, you know, like the royalties paid up to the actual people who produce the uh, knowledge in the first place. And of course, how academic academia itself is, I mean, for its pretenses to be egalitarian, it's very much an open and merit-based. It's very much... Um, structured along very hierarchical lines. If there's an institution in Global North, for example, uh, automatically then the research that comes out from it uh, ties very much back to um, the own, their own like uh, social, political, uh, economic context in which they're working in versus, uh, let's say, if you're an academic working from somewhere in uh, Southeast Asia, maybe with the exception of Singapore. Uh, but if you're working from anywhere else, then you're already, already starting from a disadvantage. Uh, so you are still conducting research, yes, but what is it? But the research may not necessarily lead to uh, any tangible changes. I mean, uh, well, I, uh, I mean also, and I think it is most destructive. Then it can go on to buttress, uh, you know, uh, interests that are inimical to um, that of the broader population. 
I think that's what we can consider as researchers, not activism. Uh, and I think, Bonnie, in your case, would you have any uh, insights to share from this or uh, maybe to add on to this broader discussion? Because I feel like we could, if we went into this, we could spend a lot of time talking about very destructive structures within uh, within research. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because like, um, another that's that's a that's a great elaboration on research as not activism. Also, there are, there are people who do research and claim it as activism, claim it as like you know doing it for the marginalized people, but uh, not platforming the marginalized voices. So you know speaking over uh, speaking over them as simply research subjects. That's I, I think that's a very common problem uh, in academia and outside of academia. For example, in like journalism itself, in like literature and all of these things. So I guess, um, you know, uh, yeah, um, if there's anything specific that you'd like to uh, dig from me, just feel free to ask questions. We, we can have this uh, this whole conversation. But yeah, I, I totally agree about, about the whole um, university being more of a disciplinary institution actually just cranking out cranking out stuff you know cranking out uh, certain research and, and you know which ones get approved which ones get uh, you know which ones get promoted if you're if you're in a certain institution because yeah again all of all of these things tie back together into you know people like structures that perpetuate the status quo uh, which is which I find uh, you know one of the Elements. One of the things that I find very interesting in, in your research, uh, Wai Liang, is that um, there's this whole peer review process by the community instead of like purely academic, instead of like, um, you know, because you really make sure that, uh, that, that the people that you are researching, you're not researching them only, but you're like working with them, you're working uh, alongside them to get their voices heard. And you're just pretty much the, the person who like structure and systematize this instead of like speaking over uh, all of these people, which, you know, it's really reflected in your, in your research plan and your me methodology, stuff like that. So maybe, you know, you can, you can talk more about that, about the, about the whole process, about the community peer review, why you chose to, um, why you chose to go go down, like, you know, why you chose to design the research that way. And because you might have to, I mean, you're very well aware that, you know, why it takes a long time is that you might get new stuff like every every single time. You might get like contradictory voices. It, it's going to be a lot more trouble on you also to to synthesize all of these, uh, all of these different voices in a way that feels uh, representative and respectful. You know, you might have to change things up at the end, stuff like that. So um, what are the troubles and why do you think you're, you need to go through all of these troubles to get the research as activism part proper and, and, and correct in, in your opinion there. Mm. Okay. I think I, before I answer that, I have to start with a bit of a confession. Um, I think this is actually just based on my own background because after spending a lot and a lot of time in studies, then the only way I was taught to, <laughs> the only way I was actually like really taught to, uh, um, you know, consider the hallmark of, you know, like proper research is that it must go through that academic peer review uh, process at the end, uh, preferably, you know, like a double, you know, like things like double blind processes, those kind of things. But uh, the what I realized, after, I think what I realized, I, and honestly, this is a very belated, it's very much a belated uh, uh, learning outcome is, you know, like it's a peer review process is really just in many ways, it's a bit of, a, it's a bit of a sham, really, because, I'll, because I mean, it's, 
because I mean, there are all, there are all sorts of problematic issues with that. I think we may not be able to go too much into that. Um, but also, I mean, well, if that, when it comes to talking about, um, let's say, a community and uh, newsmakers, then the best people to hear from uh, would be those people working on the ground themselves. Um, of course, this doesn't mean that we uh, we have we can stop. Like you know, there's, if there are any scholars who are interested in becoming part of the peer review process, then they are very much welcome to be part of it as well. But what we insist is there must be someone who is actually working on the ground who can come and sit down with us, look through the uh, findings, the preliminary findings. These are not by no means the final the final findings just yet. And to tell us like, hey, this 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 area is not very accurately represented, so you need to uh, work out the wording for that. And uh, this, of course, it comes with its own set of challenges because if we're working across different regions, then that might mean that we will need to get translators in certain areas. Because uh, I mean, I'm very much limited by uh, where I. Uh, where I am, where I'm working from, what languages that I'm working in. Oh, and by the way, language is another key area that we're hoping to investigate further through our research. Um, and I think it's about the process of uh, trying to make this as representative as possible. Uh, and uh, and I mean, we can't presume to, we certainly do not know best ourselves because uh, within our research department, none of us actually work in the media so who are we to uh, who are we to um, you know like tell people like hey this is the truth about what's happening out there so that's why we do need to go back to the people who are actually uh, on the ground who are actually doing things who are actually under those uh, who are under those restrictions and under, working under those uh, repressive conditions both political uh, and economic um, and it'll be a long process we'll try and do it in person try to do it online to see what facilitates this uh, the peer review sessions better uh, and of course we are and of course again uh, we try to and we try to reach out to as broad a spectrum um, as possible uh, and to basically have as many checks and balances as we can because I think one thing we are aware of is that there is a lot of authorial power in uh, the written word the written document uh, because I mean on one hand it looks like hey it's just like a bunch of words. But on the other hand, these are kind of, these are also things which can go on to inform like how uh, people craft, how uh, policymakers craft their policies, how people uh, consider like uh, how people consider situations on the ground. Uh, they can get cited, and once you are masked into these sorts of discursive forms, and these can have impacts on uh, uh, on the real world, or so to speak. So, which is why it goes back again to the issue of um, uh, the power of the text itself. Uh, we have to make sure that what comes out, we are uh, confident that we have done our best under those circumstances and that we have spoken uh, to the people on the ground who can tell us whether or not we're uh, in the right track or whether we're proverbially we're barking up the wrong tree. So that's, so again, it'll be, it's going to be a very long ongoing process. We'll try to have about, uh, if uh, time and resources permit, we will try to have a couple uh, each of the subsequent reports that will be coming out between uh, June of this year and uh, December of this year as well. And if there's any loose ends, then we'll try and wrap them up in uh, in a final report that will come out in by March of 2024. Uh, but of course, if there's any dissension, disagreements, then we'll make sure that those are very much reflected in the... Um, uh, in our in our written documents, so make sure that all this is documented in some form or another. 
I think if you don't mind, I would like to go into this, I guess this little rather inspiring story, actually. Uh, coincidentally, it comes from, it actually just comes, coincidentally comes from Malaysia as well. So it comes from, uh, I think this was when James C. Scott was uh, doing some field work in uh, the state of Kedah. Uh, he was look, looking very much into um, forms of peasant resistance among uh, the rural population in a small village. Uh, and what he did at the end was he sort of invited the, uh, his research participants back to um, talk about, uh, to go and look at his findings to see what had emerged from them. And if I'm not mistaken, they actually had quite a few comments for him. Uh, and they told him like, right, this is not, this is not quite how it, how it works. And he went back and corrected. He had to go and make some corrections over there. And what struck me very much was how transparent that he uh, he seemed about this, he appeared to be about this process uh, where he acknowledged that this sort of like informal community peer review session actually went some way towards um, refining the insights further. So I think that's another thing we comment, then we might comment upon. So new narrative isn't, we're not really in a position where we're like the undisputed authority, but how every bit of research is very much a co-production. It goes back to the, I think our own terminology that we're using because we are not talking to research informants because that in, in because that implies a very uh, extractive uh, process. But research participants because we are co-participants in this kind of production of uh, production of knowledge. It's a very small semantic shift, but uh, nonetheless a shift that um, I think is important for us to acknowledge because I think. Uh, I think Bonnie, as you alluded to earlier, the extractive quality of um, research itself is really very much problematic uh, because we're not just there, because it can be easy to tell people like, hey, we're going to tell your story and we're doing good things for you. But uh, that's, that implies a very hierarchical top-down uh, position. So how can, it's also very much a question of how can you be fair to uh, the people on the ground because you can take your stories, you uh, manufacture at least social cultural capital out of it. And what do they have? They just get cited. And worse still, these findings might be used against them. So those are all things to things to consider. Um, they're no easy questions, I think. It's very complex, a very complex field altogether. Yeah. Um, do you have any worries about about this particular approach? For example, like um, obviously, because because we're both we're both pretty much on the same page here about about what research itself should be doing to the rest of society. But what about like you know? Um, the rest of like academia, for example, or other institutions, or or the the public at large, and uh, have you had any pushback regarding how uh, how you're conducting this, or maybe you know you should try to be more objective. You should, you know, because you have you have all of these uh, cult, uh, you know, scare quotes here, but like cultural capital that these people do not, and so you have this responsibility of like you know, shaping the narrative further, perhaps? Or maybe you have pushback in other direction that people who say that, hey, you're still the one writing this, so, you know, it's not purely about, you know, like, all of these negotiations are are complicated, to, to say the least, right? Have you heard any kind of, like, pushback or criticisms or, like, uh, you know, competing perspectives regarding this this matter? Or do you expect to in, in the in the future? Hmm. Um, well, we did get quite a few suggestions uh, during the uh, during the initial like uh, preliminary research design phase. Uh, I think one example we can that I can give is uh, we were asked whether we could uh, perhaps platform the voices of more uh, male research participants, for example, 
uh, just to give like a more rounded uh, picture. But after some internal discussion, then we decided against it because the primary objective over here was to platform again uh, more of those again more marginalized voices. Uh, so that's I think that's the one thing that I can think of. But it might also be a function. We might not have had a lot of pushback. Primarily, it's a function that we. I mean, we tend to talk to people within our circles and those tend to be dictated along the lines of we have similar values and similar interests. So, and also, I think the other fact of the matter that we have to be very blunt about is that we are working in uh, the English language. So that automatically stratifies us along, uh, certain, along certain lines um, within Southeast Asia. So we are talking, we may be talking to people who may share uh, similar values as us because we have been consuming similar material. We have been learning, uh, brought up on similar content and that kind of thing. So we can only very much, we have, on, I think in many ways, we are still sort of stuck within a sliver of, uh, like say, like a broader society. So we need to find a way to, uh, but we need to find a way to break out from those, from that broader structure. In this case, it's a linguistic division. We need to find a way to go beyond that somehow and i think invariably there will be uh there will be pushback uh there will be some pushback there'll be further comments and things like that but i think it's all part of the process that we have to come to terms with and we would have to and we would have to acknowledge we have not quite gotten to that stage yet so i may i may have more insights to share like one year down the road when things actually like happen further so yeah, uh, for now we are really just embarking on the very first act of this. We have just embarked on the first act of the, of this uh, story. We have yeah, we have just put our things on the world, and now we're going to see what happens to it. Yeah. Um, do you do you have any concerns about you know? Um, I guess guaranteeing the diversity of, of of voices itself. I mean, obviously you mentioned linguistics and and the whole and the whole barrier to that and 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 so on. But like, um, it's quite common, for example, for people to um, self censor or for people to internalize um, internalize certain bigotry and inferiority, and just for them to like refuse outright being interviewed, like. Or feel that hey, you know, this is just another research. I'm not going to be heard anyway. Why don't this my um, superior male colleague or whatever just take the stage and just uh, he will be able to tell you more information? You know, because a lot of those things happen, right? If 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 we're not careful, I mean, obviously, the way this research is framed already um, prevents uh, that. You know, more extreme cases. I mean, uh, the way this is approached has already, I believe, prevented. Um, the more <laughs> overt cases of, of of those things, but how do you how do you yeah do do you see any do you have any kind of like concerns or challenges about these these issues? Maybe people are more um, self censoring, afraid to speak up about these things. Maybe maybe they're afraid to lose their jobs if they're if they're being honest while being interviewed. You know stuff like that. Well, how how would you how would you prevent that? Mm. Uh, I don't think it's possible to prevent it completely because I feel like there's, you know, there's because I mean in the end all the information that's uh, that we receive is uh, given entirely voluntary voluntarily. So, I mean, we do try to emphasize that 
um, we'll keep that data, we'll keep the data confidential, and although we do have to record the interviews for uh, just to prepare a transcript afterwards, then the original recordings will be deleted. Um, and we also, what we the other thing that we what we have done is, and it seems to be working out so far, is that we've basically uh, once we finish, so well, you see, because we actually finished the main the first draft of our um, uh, prelim preliminary analyses from Malaysia, Singapore, and Brunei. Uh, we have run them past the research participants to get their approval about how they have been represented. Uh, and at that point, if they feel like there's uh, a bit too much information that might give them away, then they're perfectly free to uh, remove that, those sections entirely. So that's one safeguard that we have, uh, and hopefully that encourages a bit more a bit more transparency, a bit more sharing, but I think one under no illusions that we are going to get the complete full picture in this sense. Uh, but I think what we can do is to try and build up trust that we're not just going to present uh, information outright without telling them how we are going to present it. So there's that extra precaution that we have when we go back to talk to folks and ask them like, hey, is this, is this actually okay for you? Are you comfortable with the way that we are presenting this? Um, and it does take quite a lot of time, actually. A lot of time, a lot of correspondence. And yeah, and as it turns out, like as even the first three months of this year have just disappeared and like, wait, but I haven't done anything yet. So uh, that's, I think that, but it goes, I think that one goes back towards that idea where, you know, you can engender greater, greater trust, perhaps greater, more sharing. If you're, I think if you're being sincere about how you go about things and to be very perfectly honest about, about all of that. So yeah, a lot of a lot of little uh, checks and balances. I think we kind of and I mean we didn't come up with this um, right from the start. So it's not like we had this grand overarching plan from the beginning. Like we are going to do this, this, and this. But we kind of learned along the way. We've tailored, and I think we've tried to fine tune and tailor it. So I think that's why even the uh, the fun method that's uh, just dropped a few not too long ago. Uh, that's very much the tidy version of. Uh, of our research process in reality there's really a lot of back and forth uh, a lot of moving parts and a lot of ideas that just kind of like spontaneously came to us and in hindsight we're like wait a second why did we not think of this earlier so i think that's a i think for us that's the main thing uh, the research process is a process it goes back and forth and it's very much built upon trust and how much you can share and that sort of thing okay um yeah it is it is a very um complex and it needs to be an iterative process. It's an ongoing process with lots of trial and error. I mean, this hasn't, I, I believe this hasn't been done a lot by, by like, you know, research. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You can tell me uh, more about that later. But um, we've been talking so far about this research methodology and process and that has to do with like knowledge production, right? But then um, after that, obviously, we, we come to the challenges of how to distribute that knowledge and how people would consume that knowledge. And later it can, you know, we can, uh, it connects back to the whole algorithm thing and so on. But like, can you talk a bit more about after the research is done, after, um, you've mentioned this earlier, but um, after this knowledge, at least of the, the earlier parts or like this um, sequence, this series is uh, series four has been produced then how do you expect it to be like distributed and consumed and then utilized in a more emancipatory manner and then political changes it, it, it might have? What do you hope after this 
production? How do you hope to distribute it, and what what things do you hope to get out of it? Essentially, what changes do you uh, do you hope it will have? Mm. Well, I guess distribution wise, then the I mean the one thing we have to do is we have to we definitely have to translate it. That's for sure. So uh, there's going to be an ongoing process. So we are well kind of targeting translations into also into Bahasa Indonesia, uh, into the Thai language, uh, and into uh, Burmese as well. Um, but of course, then it be- if it becomes a matter of how you can use this to effect change, um, uh, then it has to be a matter of like maybe trying to present it to, uh, let's say, like right stakeholders. It might have to be the kind of thing where you go back to, uh, uh, where you go back to think tanks, policymakers, and uh, talk to them like, hey, so this is what we found and do you want to act upon this? Of course, then there's no guarantee that it can be taken up or not. So, uh, but and also because once something, once a text is out there in the world, then it takes on its own, takes on a life of its own very much. Uh, it has, and and you can't, and we're not very sure what can happen from here because we have, I mean, we have very lofty idealistic, go- idealistic goals about, okay, we want, we can use this and inform, I mean, it can inform, of course, like our, the Media Freedom Network, that's the, I mean, that's the other obvious place it can go into. Uh, but beyond that, we haven't quite cracked it yet because, I mean, it's one thing you can put it up on the website, it's free for everyone to access, but then do people actually access it or uh, do people even know that it's out there? So, and also, I mean, what makes this different from all the other reports that are being produced by um, other institutions, uh, the other databases that have more complete figures that we than we can hope to have? So it's very much a matter of how we present it, what, and uh, how we present it, and how it can help uh, people within those uh, immediate circ- within our immediate circles. Uh, whether it's a small thing like you know, like an honorarium for their time, um, or that's the very least that we can do. Um, but we also we have to keep trying to think of hard ways in which we can further disseminate the information. And I mean, of course, then it comes up through new narratives, um, other outputs as well. Uh, they can take the form of comics, for example, uh, or, I mean, it can come out on social media in various formats. Uh, but of course, we have no guarantee that this can actually be acted upon. And I think that's going to be an ongoing conversation we can have within the team of how exactly we go about it. Now that we have the results, what do we do next? And I think there's no no easy way to answer it. But we'll, I suppose, we'll just keep trying what we can under the circumstances. Um, okay. What is what is your view on the state of the conversation um, right now? Not in terms of like, you know, obviously not, not like the, the conversation among the team that we have amongst ourselves, but like the conversation regarding... Uh, you know, regarding this this uh, the, this research, the, these these issues, these topics, because obviously there's always a concern of like uh, preaching to the choir, that you know people who will read this research are just people who are who are on the same page anyway from 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 the beginning. You know, uh, people who uh, while we we need we we want people to you know we want people outside of the bubble outside of the choir so to speak to actually read this and to actually you know gain new insights and maybe change how how they you know change their policies maybe you know certain kinds of media would be more open and inclusive and platforming these voices and stuff like that but um, yeah, do you think these conversations are happening both in in the media and in, in the media landscape, but also in the academia landscape? Uh, 
Um, what do you think is the state of this conversation and the challenges that we still need to overcome? Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be a very subjective answer. Um, I don't know. I feel that there are conversations happening in various spheres, uh, but they're not really connecting to each other. So something might be happening in, for example, uh, there might be conversations happening in Malay language uh, media production or Chinese language media production, but uh, because I'm, I'm not very privy to what happens in those spheres, so it's very hard. I think it's a main challenge because I just because in many ways, then I, I mean myself personally, I just do not always know what's happening in a different area. Uh, so I think it's hard to give an answer to this, but I suppose the one. I guess suppose that's an answer in itself because it feels like there's very much a disconnect between different groups and what they are talking about. So it's very hard to know exactly what the broad overall picture looks like. But I think within the Malaysian media landscape, there may be uh, there may be more uh, conversations happening because I mean there are a lot of groups that are doing uh, excellent work all around, such as uh, you know like places like the Center for Independent Journalism, and of course there's the broader push to form uh, a Malaysian Media Council, uh, which very much I think it's very much in touch with uh, these broader discussions that we will raise during the during our analysis. It's very much concerned with um, uh, things like how much the the role of the state, for example, in um, staying out of uh, dictating what happens in the media. But it's also, I think also be very much concerned with the economic side of things. And maybe the economic side is what we don't think about so much because, I mean, it's, I mean, we focus very much on like, uh, you know, repression, censorship, uh, legislation. But I mean, there's other things to consider like, okay, so how are we going to get paid and things like that? And I mean, there are also further insights that are coming out into, you know, like, okay, so you can produce something, but uh, it comes to your imagined audience or so to speak. Uh, like, uh, are these, uh, like, uh, in this case, like, uh, are you censoring yourself based on what you imagine that the audience might react to? Uh, and these are all extremely complex areas that uh, very, a lot of media scholars are uh, looking into. And I think what we can do is, in many ways, is we just like, you know, take insights from uh, the different, uh, I mean, like different literature that we're reading, the different scholars we're speaking to, uh, and of course, other research participants and what uh, they see from the ground. So I think we just have to synthesize all of that. I, I know I've gone off on a bit of a tangent. I have to apologize for that. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's what I can share for now. Uh, we only have a partial knowledge of what's going on in the world. We only see things from uh, from a certain positionality. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's, it's fine. We can go off on tangents because it is, it is like all of those things are uh, related because, you know, uh, we, we, tend, we tend to, you know, things tend to get a lot more polarized, right? So that's why it's, it's, it's getting more and more difficult to, to actually have a proper conversation and to people who are different who are like who have different thoughts from us because for example if if you if you take the if you take the issue of gender and then right away if you're like people the first thing that people are going to ask is that is this trans exclusionary or is this trans inclusive right and then that just splits people into into two camps if you're if you're exclusionary then it's like the the 
quote unquote gender criticals that are on that camp, and then if you're trans uh, inclusionary, then people who are on that camp who are more conservative are just not going to read it anyway, which is fine probably, but like you know they're not going to change. Uh, the 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 whole you know policies and stuff like that anyway. So we need to empower the correct people to push for push for change in in like in like lots of, lots of different directions. So it is. Uh, I, I do agree that it is a very um, it is a very complicated landscape and it is getting more and more polarized. It is actually a, quite a genuine um, curiosity that I also personally have, um, which is how do you how do you actually produce knowledge that. Makes a difference not only in terms of like um, platforming and empowering people, but also like empowering these people to push for change and having discussions, having conversations that are productive, that are not like super toxic and just you know not these social media uh, conversations, if we can even call them that. Uh, discussions, if we can even call them that, it would be quite generous to actually name them discussions when it's just threats of like. Flame wars and people um, fighting against one another who don't really have a vision for you know for understanding for like mutual understanding. So uh, so so that's so that's the kind of that's the kind of um, landscape that we're looking at. Uh, yeah. Now 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 I'm going off on a tangent, but like to go back to the to go back to the topic to go back to the issue here. Um, how do you think? Um, I guess this is a, it's a it's a two part question, right? How do you think the 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 listeners can actually foster a lot more of these uh, of these vision of like researchers activism of actually platforming and empowering uh, marginalized voices, and more specifically, maybe they uh, if they're from a marginalized group or if they're you know if they're an academic, uh, maybe they'd like to. Um, discuss further or like take part in this uh, in in your research or maybe draw from your research um, conclusions later down the line to maybe further um, to yeah to to do their own research and in, in, in like a, in like a follow-up thing uh, maybe we can talk uh, talk more about that about people's involvement if they're really already sold in this already sold in this research methodology like yeah this is we're on the same page this is what this is what i want to do so what can they do hmm. okay um i think maybe to synthesize um as well i mean the i mean i have to do my sales pitch where or definitely welcoming feedback comments concerns true uh, as part of the community peer review process so if you would like to sign up for it uh, you can always write to us and then we can figure out something that works for you uh, as a listener, uh, but of course, as a listener, then I think in broad, a more broad, general sense, it's very much about being, I think, about being critical about the types of media that you consume. Uh, but I, and also, I mean, not, I, and also, I don't think we're in a position to be, you know, to be prescriptive and to dictate how this can be done. So it has to be very much, and I think, very much an organic learning process. Uh, that people kind of, as a listener, that you'd kind of have to, you'd have to learn, you'd have to, you'd have, you have to figure out, you have to get used to um, on yourself. Because I mean, at the end of the day, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, like, uh, uh, we are, you know, just another voice out there. And 
uh, I mean, as a listener listening in, then it's you, you don't necessarily you can't re- because you can't really be sure that this is the only way to see things because there could be in our research, like for example, other things that we have overlooked that um, and that would be and which may be remiss on our part. Um, but yeah, I think if there are any like young scholars, researchers, or academics who would be interested in talking to us about this process, I mean, we are. I mean, I'm. I assume there must be other groups out there who are doing work that is similar. Uh, and of course, there are very much a lot of scholar activists out there whom we, uh, uh, who have given out tips, resources, uh, things that you can do if you want to conduct research and be engaged at the same time. Um, but yeah, I think it's maybe with maybe the one thing that we can immediately do is just be open to conversations and feedback and that sort of thing. Okay, so lastly, maybe you can you can tell us about what to expect from uh, from your research. I mean, I know we're we're very early in the game, and you've uh, we've had uh, we 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 talk we talk for quite a while about the methodology, about the vision, and stuff like that. And it's it's gonna take a while, but um, we are at series four, publication one. So what's coming next in publication two and three and and four? I mean, we discussed uh, you did mention that earlier, but maybe just just to give a listener kind of like a wrap-up on on what to expect there. Okay, sure. Uh, well, the immediate one that's hopefully coming out in June would be our focus on Malaysia, Singapore, and Brunei. Uh, I know at one point we definitely want to problematize the, using the nation-state as, uh, again, a frame, as a unit of analysis. This is really done everywhere automatically. That just shows how automatic we automatically we defer back to the idea that there is a nation-state, there is a certain way of things are done and structured within these. But uh, we also structured these interview our research participants into, into sort of like key thematic areas. So what kind of uh, linking up shared similarities in many ways between our, let's say like our participants from these, uh, from these three uh, areas for historical, uh, for, in this case, largely out of historical concern. Uh, and then later down the line, we'll be moving to speaking to participants from uh, Indonesia and the Philippines if things go according to plan. So those insights should be out in maybe six months from now. And then after that, we really want to speak to other people in the rest of Southeast Asia. Uh, but I think that's where our own limitations come in because we are very much... In many ways, uh, new narrative is very much uh, a maritime Southeast Asian-based uh, uh, institution and following. So we need to find more ways to work together with people who are doing work in uh, the rest of the region. And I know there's a lot of groups that are doing amazing uh, amazing research work on their own who are based mostly in the mainland, such as the Manusia Foundation is uh, one of them whom we would like to point out. Uh, but yeah, and, and I think that's going to be us. And, and I think we'll hope to see more insights in terms of, you know, like lived experiences on the ground um, across the across the rest of the region. So I think that's what to expect for the rest of this year. And next year, we'll have closing thoughts for any loose ends that we have not wrapped up. We'll try and put them together and use those as a platform for a further jumping off point in which uh, people can... Uh, maybe conduct their own research or ask more questions or, you know, for the research team to take further uh, from there. And of course, this, of course, means, and of course, you can expect to see more stuff from our Media Freedom Network here because they are, the network is very much the other part of um, the part of this process, how we put things into action. I think that's a bit of my wrap. This, this should be my wrap-up, I think, on what to expect. 
Okay, um, thank you so much, uh, Wai Liang. That's so um, interesting, and it's and it's quite a, uh, an exciting prospect. I can't wait to actually read uh, what you what you discover throughout throughout the research process. And it's yeah, I'm looking forward, and good luck to to your research. And that wraps up our discussion with Wai Liang Tham. As we've mentioned, media freedom is an ongoing process, and Series 4, Engendering Media Freedom, will consist of three analyses published over the next three quarters, with concluding remarks to be published in February next year. By that time, we hope to generate not only a very preliminary overview of different degrees of media freedom regionally, but also to generate spaces for your own further research, discussion, and activism. If you'd like to become either a community peer reviewer or research participant, feel free to reach out to Waliang Tham at waliang.tham at newnarrative.com. That's W-A-I-L-I-A-N-G dot T-H-A-M at newnarrative.com. My name is Bonibel Ramatan, and this has been Southeast Asia Dispatches, brought to you by New Narrative and produced by Dania Yudo. I'll see you around. <laughs>